All right, you guys get the honor of meeting one of my really good friends. He is absolutely amazing. Let's show a little video clip. Today's guest is a school dropout turned pro skateboarder, turned TV host, turned entrepreneur. Twenty feet in the air. Okay. It knocks him out and then covers him like a sweet tire blanket. We'll be right back with more ridiculous hair. Multi-million dollar empire that spans real estate, shoes, food, alcohol, entertainment, and several other verticals. I'm so excited to introduce you to Rob Deerdeck. 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 Rob Deerdeck is a serial entrepreneur. Media magnet and founder and CEO of the Deerdick Machine. Rob became a professional skateboarder at the age of 16 and started his first company at 18. He has over, uh, over the course of a 25 year career, he became one of the sport's most prominent ambassadors. He is the face of a $500 million apparel and footwear brand, 37 signature shoes, and 200 signature skateboards. 24 Guinness World Book Records. I only have two. And <laughs> during that time, he also founded 13 brands on his own, including Street League Skateboarding, the world's first true professional skateboarding league, and even immortalized his childhood skate gang with Wild Grinders, a Nickelodeon cartoon, and accompanying toy line. In the years that followed, millions around the world watched Rob push reality TV to new heights kick-flipping a car, being attacked by sharks and tigers, jockeying or jogging a, a racehorse, and being pulled into a big wave in Hawaii. The one stunt that Rob will admit actually almost killed him. Today, he sits at the helm of Deerdick Machine, a fully integrated multi-platform universe of venture-building media, community, and philanthropy. Founded in Los Angeles in 2016, Deerdick Machine builds brands from the idea stage all the way to the exit to create both successful companies and significant return on capital investment. Since its launch, Deerdick Machine has created 18 brands, including Outstanding Foods, Jolie Cinco, Midright, and Lusso Cloud six of which have, have exited for an aggregated value of more than $650 million. Rob remains one of the most prolific personalities in TV history. His current show, MTV's Ridiculousness, is now in its 34th season, and Rob shoots and produces 336 episodes a year. The Runaway Hit was created through Rob's production company. Give it up for Rob Deerdick!
I'm so happy you're here. He's literally the busiest person I know. I, I, I have never seen anybody schedule like this guy schedules. In fact, we're going to even start with that because you told me you've got a whole new take on scheduling. Yeah, look, I, I'm, first of all, I'd do anything for Bill, especially come, come to Leap oh, as, you. you know, he always, uh, he'll ask us about coming to Leap maybe like tomorrow for next year, you know, he'll be, he'll be that advanced in it. But for me, you know, look, I look at time not as something that happens to me, but something I create every single day. And then I just really look at through the lens of how does it feel? The time that I created, I chose to create the schedule, all the things that I need to do. What's the energy that I feel with the people I'm around or what it is? And then I try to optimize it around that. I just try not to look at time as if it's, oh, it just continues to happen. And there's, because, you know, the truth is there's never enough time to do the things you want to if you always are doing the things you have to. And so if you don't learn to design your time and look at your life through, how would I like to spend my time? What gives me energy? That's, that's the path that leads you towards living a life of energy. And energy experienced on a consistent basis creates happiness. That's really the root of it. But you got to be adaptable. You know, even yeah. today, I, you know, before coming here today, my wife was all upset. Something happened with her. Uh, with her company, so I canceled uh, the two meetings I had before here and then took her to lunch. You know, like, it's not about, like, being militant about a schedule. It's about building a rhythm and creating consistency and then adapting it based off of how you feel, you know. Cool. All right, let's do the story. So here you are, this little kid playing around with skateboards. How did it all happen? I mean, look, you, you never know where your life's going to take you, especially if you grow up in Dayton, Ohio, the idea that you're going to go and be a professional skateboarder wasn't really part of like the potential. But, you know, I got a skateboard. I got good at it early. And I really wanted to skate this ramp that was at the local skate shop. And so I just, you know, I had to pay and I didn't have money. So I just called and said, hey, if I get 10 people to enter this uh, pay to skate your ramp, will you let me skate for free? They thought it was so random that some kid would just call them and try to make a deal with them without even knowing. And they just invited me down to skate for free. And when I skated, um, they were like, man, you have a lot of potential. And I was like, I didn't even know what the word meant. And they were like, do you want to be on the team? And you were really what, 14, here? right? I was 11 at that 11? Time. Yeah. So, you know, again, I only say it more to the lens of I just took a shot. You know, it, it's, it's sometimes it's like you think the impossible, um, you know, even asking the question, oh, I don't even want to ask the question, but you, you, it's okay to hear no, and you got to be able to deal with no. You can't, like, ask the question if they just said, hey, we can't do that. you got to pay, and then I call over and over and be like, please, 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 now you're off the rails. But I took a shot, and then it changed my entire life because it, then they said, you have potential. They allowed me to skate for free. Next thing you know, I'm sponsored, and then the vision set in. I'm going to be a pro skateboarder and move to California, which, you know, made my mother sad for all those years. And as I'd get in trouble, I'd be like, I'm moving to California anyway. Uh, and, of course, I eventually fulfilled the vision by turning pro and moving to California when I was uh, 16. 16. You guys, we talk about life-defining moments, right? You never know when they're going to happen or where they're going to go. But he did exactly what I told you to do with them. Don't just take those opportunities, master them. 
And so you started skating and skating and skating, and you really perfected the skill of skating. Yeah, and I think to the point of, like, getting an opportunity and capitalizing on it, like, and, and, and then always looking for opportunity. Because I think even when I first got to California, I met with a manufacturer that was looking to put together a new truck company, the metal part of the skateboard, and I proposed an entire concept of creating Orion Aluminum and getting all my pro skateboarder friends together to create that company. And by, again, just capitalizing on where I was in a relationship, boom, now I started my first company at 18 years old. You know, it's, it's opportunities are all around us. And we tend to be so focused on wanting an outcome that we're thinking about so much rather than building a process to get to our outcome, but being open to what other opportunities might might create a better path for us or accelerate our current path, you know. But even logistically, how did you live here in L.A. alone as a 16-year-old? Yeah, I'm... Look, I went to Europe for the World Championships when I was 16, year old, 16 years old, and I'm pretty sure it's not legal. You know, I mean, it's like I got lost in Europe. I couldn't read the French train translation on the train station. I, I was supposed to go to Munster, Germany. I ended up in Munster, France, in a small town where nobody spoke English by myself, like where somebody like saw me sleeping in the park and like helped me get there. Um, you know, again, I moved out with someone that could sign the lease and all these other things. So I, I wouldn't say logistically it was uh, necessarily on the up and up. Uh, but I, you know, once I turned 18, I was able to get the bank account and, and legitimize myself as opposed to being a hybrid runaway from Ohio. Yeah. So if you, you know, kind of go back to, you know, you, you start skating in this park and you're getting better and better at this, you start picking up a few sponsors, what would you say was like the first big break, the first time when it's like, like I, I got this and I know I, I'm, I'm going to really go? Yeah, I mean, look, I think as, as I really started getting like good in contest was like the moment that I won the uh, Midwest regionals, right? Like then it was like, man, here's all these other like young skaters that are that are from California and and have, have have spent time in California that are the next pros, and I just beat all of them. That was really that sort of moment. And I think it's you know when I think about belief, belief, you don't just start with belief. Right, like you grow belief over time. And it's like, you know, the belief started first when they're like, man, you got real potential. Somebody told me you could be a pro skater. Then I got better and better. And then I, there was these markers or milestones where I would find, I would win a contest or, or do a big trick where I got noticed for it. And it just slowly built belief until then when I finally was asked by GNS Skateboards, hey, we want to turn you pro. That was like the moment of like, oh my goodness, it like actually became a reality, you know. You arrived. Yeah. Oh, and it's like, and guess what? In, in 1991, when I turned pro, I made $600 in the whole year. That year in Christmas, I sold one signature skateboard and I got a check for $2. So it wasn't like, oh, you're a pro skate. It's not like I turned pro and like made millions of dollars. It was like, you're just pro now and you still got to figure out a way to survive, you know. Right. But you use that as a springboard to the next thing, mm -hmm. which was? 
ultimately, well, really in between, I'm, I then began to evolve the sponsorships and then really like creating DC shoes was the first big quantum leap, right? right where now I was making um, much more significant money. You know, I went from making a few thousand to making hundreds of thousands. But e even with that relationship, it's like, okay, you're a pro skateboarder. You know, what is, how do you take like even what you do in skateboarding to another level? It's very difficult, but I was looking at what, you know, Jackass was doing and Bam was doing. And I ended up writing an idea for a skate video about taking a security guard with me um, to deal with security guards when I would get kicked out, right? So if I went and tried to skate around this campus, I'm getting kicked out by a security guard here, right? It's, and back then the joke was, I'm gonna bring my big homie, and you don't don't talk to me. You can talk to him, and that you know created this big like viral moment in skateboarding, which then led to Jeff Tremaine, who created Jackass, of being like, you should get, you guys should do a television show together. But you think about that, like, it's I could have just filmed the video part. Instead, I was like, how can I make it special? How can I take it one step further? And I created the skit. But I created the skit just to make a cool thing in skateboarding, but look what it did. It saw a director saw it, which then opened the door to another thing. Then it was like, do you want to shoot a television show? And the next thing you know, I'm shooting a television show, uh, which, you know, again, this massive quantum leap where now all of a sudden I created this like mainstream television fame. Have any of you guys watched Rob? Yeah. Awesome, right? And that was all your idea. So who was it? It was MTV that picked that up, right? Yeah. Yep. And that was what year? That was, it, it came out in 2007. And you did how many episodes of that? I did three seasons of that. I only did 40, I think 48 episodes. And then, you know, really, really saw the power of what that show did, but wanted to be able to do it on a bigger scale and that's why I ended up creating Fantasy Factory because I wanted to blend my business mind and my entertainment mind into a single show. That's why uh, I ended up creating Fantasy Factory and I wanted to go further on the stunts, right? Because on Robin Big, like I rode a bull and I'm like, whoa, like I rode a bull? Like, man, I could probably do crazier stunts. And then in the first season of Fantasy Factory, I got attacked by a shark. And then the next thing you know, I'm jockeying a horse. And now it's like I jumped a truck like 100 feet. I, then I became like this mentality of, man, I could build the most insane highlight reel of my life by keep doing these stunts. And that's almost like what Fantasy Factory ended up becoming. And that transitioned into ridiculousness. Yeah, and then, you know, the, as you grow and evolve and change your wants, needs, and desires, and what gives you energy change. Like through Robin Big and now Fantasy Factory, I just no longer enjoyed shooting the reality side of television. It was just too difficult. And I'm, I'm, but I liked shooting television, so I created ridiculousness because it's like instead of running around all the place and put myself in danger, I can just go to a studio and, and shoot a show. And I, and I looked at it and I was like, man, America's Funniest Home Videos have been on the air for 20 years. There's only parts of it that's funny. 
I, I took an episode of America's Funniest Home Videos, and I took out all the unfunny videos and segmented it into two segments, and I took my Xbox, uh, burned a CD, took my Xbox into MTV, and showed them on the screen how I would do the show. Like, I'm going to segment each thing, and then I'll rewind it back and, and do, you know, what it will be. And they were like, okay, great. You know, like, they they... They were willing to take the shot out of it based off of all that success that I had. But I don't think any of us would have ever thought that, hey, then you're going to turn around and do it for, you know, 20 years and you're going to do a few thousand shows. I don't think n nobody involved in the show, not even MTV, would have thought that was possible. You know? So he here's the thing that I want you guys to think about. There's always a starting point, you know. Sometimes, sometimes it's serendipitous, sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's just random, you know? But, but those are those things I talked to you about, those life-defining moments. And then you kind of build on those, you know? I mean, if he had just walked in to MTV before all this other stuff and said, hey, I have an idea for this show, Ridiculousness, they would have said, great, and kicked him out, you know? But... At the point he was at, he had built such a following, you know, that it, it just made sense for them. You know, I, just like in my career, I was very, very lucky, you know. I mean, this girl comes into my office. She offers to be my publicist. She has me, you know, out in all these magazines. Do you know that when I first started advertising, it was actually bad in dentistry? Like, de other dentists w hated me. They looked down on me. Like, it's not professional for a, a doctor to advertise. But I'm like, I'm starving here. And you guys aren't feeding me. So I'm going to advertise because it brings warm bodies in the office, you know. And from that, it built and built and built. And then, you know, for me, it was that, you know, extreme makeover. All of a sudden, I'm on millions of TV sets every night and my company explodes. But had I not had all those steps prior to that, that would have never happened. And he is genius at capitalizing on these things and basically mastering them and bringing it to the next level and next level and next level. You have clothing, you have shoes, you have skateboards, you have media. I mean, on and on and on. You are a machine. Yeah. You are a machine. How do you manage all this? Like who actually, I mean, you can't do everything. Like how many employees do you actually have right now? Yeah, I mean, look, like right now I have, you got to understand the way that I built the company was so that I could basically build systems or little machines that could go and run themselves. So I don't operate any of the companies. And all the companies that I've built and sell, I've put them together, financed them, and then they grew on their own with my advice. But I still, you know, at this point in my life, even at this scale of shooting 336 episodes of television, I shoot 54 podcasts a year. I have my core portfolio of companies and the companies that I'm building and all of my personal wealth that I manage. I still only do that with a few hours a day, right? I only work about 25% of my time, which is the same as a nine to five job. And I've done that through, because I wanna spend the majority of my time focused on my health, my family, my wife and kids and, and the things that I enjoy. So the only way to do that is to create systems um, or create systems for people to run for you, 
Right. Explain to them what that means, create systems, because, uh, I mean, they're in school. Like, what is yeah, that? No, no, I know it's a, it's a, it, 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 it gets incredibly difficult to think about, and it's a tough, it's a tough thing to scale, but, you know, you got to think about, you have a limited amount of, of mental capacity and physical time, right? So when you get overwhelmed and your mind collapses, it's because you're over capacity. So, you know, you have the 17 hours a day, and if you don't really begin to build them with, with complete intention, you won't begin to even understand what you're capable of doing. And so for me, once I really began to understand, okay, this is what I'm capable of, the only way to get back more capacity was to automate something, right? So meals I get delivered. Right, so now I don't have to worry about trying to figure out or go or spend the time to go eat. I get the meals delivered. Right, I have uh, an entire system of how my emails are managed by my um, my my assistant. Right, to make sure that I'm always responsive and on it without necessarily needing to do every single one myself. You just begin to look at all these ways of like how can you put in a process that basically creates it to make it energy neutral to where you can have that capacity and energy back to do something else. I've just done that on grand scales of how I build companies and how I have, you know, operate my entire life so that the entire thing can be, you know, one big giant machine doing all of this complex work, but I only have to dedicate a minimal amount of time to do it. I want you guys to go to your top 20 and write this down. It's called the 80-20 rule. It applies in a lot of different things in life. I'm going to tell you the first thing it does, which relates to what Rob's talking about, and the second thing it does. The 80-20 rule is when you start to delegate and have people start doing stuff for you, you have to pretty much be content with it getting about 80% right. <laughs> you cannot... If you actually think that everything you delegate is going to be done 100% the way you want, you will make yourself crazy and everybody who works for you will quit, right? You have to have very realistic expectations and just know that if I'm hiring people to do stuff for me, if they get it 80% right, that's pretty good. The other thing is when you're selling and you're in sales, you'll always hear the 80-20 rule. 80% of your customers, or 20% of your customers, customers will be 80% of your revenue. And that's what you have to focus on. Whenever you build a company or a business, you always want to focus on the top 20% because they're driving 80% of your revenue. You know, you're not going to be able to be all things to all people. You know, but if you can really make that that 20 percent super happy, you're golden because they will provide you with 80 percent of your revenue. Get it? Good. <laughs> what? <laughs> I love that. I didn't, I didn't know you guys were. I, I forgot that there's a there's a process here when something locks in for you guys. I'm going to have to bring it. I'm going to have to remember it so I can bring it up. You get it? Good. Good. Yeah. Uh, Use man. it on your show. Man, I'm gonna. I'm getting pumped up. That one chick up. might not remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's good. Um, what's your secret sauce? Yeah. Look, I think my secret sauce is I try to get better 
in every aspect of my life on an ongoing basis. I don't try to just get better at one part of my life. I don't try to like focus on one area. I try to be the best father, the best husband, as healthy as I can be. I try to continually evolve and learn the things that I need to learn to continually evolve into my limitless potential. You know, it's when you really try to focus on you know, creating harmony in your existence and then get better in all aspects of life, it will compound over time and you will grow into the ideal version of yourself. And as you get there, you will see another version of yourself that's like way more better forever. And so you get to go through this incredible process of of continuously realizing a better vision for your your overall life as a whole. And, and think about it more from the lens of school, like where you look at yourself and you're like, oh, if, like how I was when I was in middle school. Oh, how I was when I was in high school. You always look back of like how much different you are. It's because you've grown and evolved in all areas of life. You don't want that. Most people sort of pick a couple lanes to focus on once they get out of college versus like how do I continue to be um, better than I've ever been in all aspects of life and always look back every year and be like, look who I was last year. Like, you know, I when I do my goals, I do them every three years because I know I completely change who I am as a person every three years. And it's this amazing, beautiful way to live life where you keep becoming a better version and, and a more evolved version, it makes life very, very fun to live, you know. You and I had, you know, really different paths. Um, you know, I, I, kind of, I kind of got thrown onto a TV show to be a dentist and then realized I had to entertain people. Mm-hmm. That, like, I was not in entertainment. Dentistry is not fun, right? You kind of grew up in entertainment. Did you ever take any like formal acting classes or, or anything to really train yourself for media or did you just do it all on the fly? Bill, we came up just the same. You know what I mean? Because what am I doing? I'm a skateboarder from Ohio. You know what I mean? I, I shouldn't even look. But, but you were doing all no, these no, shows. Hey, listen to me. No, this is no like no different. When I when I wrote, the, I just wrote the skit for the video. The no no different than when they were like, hey, Bill, come be on the show, and then you. You found your bearings of how to be enjoyed and, and make a character and create the entertainment. I was the same. I still like, hey, now you gotta, you're responsible for creating a television show. I had to learn how to create the television show. So despite like my, right. my personality, if you will, uh, that, that laid the foundation, I had to learn TV. Right. What I, what I didn't just do is just show up each day and like let the cameras film me. I began to understand what was going into the production, how they were looking at how we were going to shoot this and then edit it so that I could get better and better at making the scenes that we shot more entertaining, more structured so that the shows were better. That that's sort of the what I also think is another secret sauce for me where it's like I just look at every opportunity that's given to me as like what are all the things that I need to learn to maximize it, you know. Exactly, you guys do that. You get it? <laughs> yes. Get it? Good. Okay, okay. Well, get there. I'll get there. You know, um, I was meeting with the Australians yesterday, and I had a little lunch with them, 
And I was telling him, you know, I, I worked and I worked. And when you start doing stuff, always, even if it's with your cell phone, video it. Because you're going to be your best, hardest critic. You're going to see things that other people probably wouldn't even be brave enough to tell you. But every time you hit a new obstacle, what do you need to do to master it? You know, um, we, you know, as you know, had whitening products. We also had a very successful line of breath products. The line was called Breath RX. And we got approached by QVC, and they wanted me to sell Breath RX on QVC. All right? You don't just walk on QVC and sell stuff. Have you ever been on QVC to sell stuff? I have stuff? not. It's a very difficult okay. process. Let me tell you how this works. You're in a room with no people, right? It's all robots. So you've got three cameras, right? And the only way you know which camera's on is by what? On top. That little red light. Nobody's talking to you. On top of that, every time you film a segment, I have a new host. So I only have 15 minutes to basically teach that host what he or she needs to say. You are there for three days, and you film every three hours. Wow. Now, luckily, I'm borderline narcoleptic. So I'd <laughs> sleep, right? Wake up and then shoot my thing. And then some people are destroyed after like the first, not me, man. Yeah. I was like born for this thing. So I worked with a media trainer for like a good two weeks to learn how to do this. Because this is what's happening. You're here. Your host is here. Your product is here. You have three cameras here. Here, you see what people see at home. On this screen, it's flashing. That flashing screen shows you what the next shot is. And then over here are sales and phone calls. So you've got six things happening, plus you have a host that you're interacting with, and you have an ERB, so they're talking to you in your ear. And you got to pretend like everything's cool, right? And, you know, you're talking, and then we talk about tongue scraping, right? Just like she mentioned, that tongue, scra tongue scraping is big, and it's gross. Like, we had this model, and it was disgusting. Like, I would take this enormous tongue scraper over this fake tongue and like all this gunky stuff then they show all the back and like the phones start lighting up we have like <laughs> thousands of phone calls so while i'm still trying to talk to this woman and be coherent they're like dr bill do more tongue scraping like uh, i did all my tongue scraping stuff like like i so i'm like i'm like trying to ad lib more tongue scraping and then and then all of a sudden these bells are going off we sold out I sold out every single segment I did. They're like, how many times have you been on QVC? I'm like, one time. But you know what? Practice makes permanent. Hmm. And I didn't just go on there and wing it. I practiced and practiced and practiced because there's no way that you can do all of these things like in a three-ring circus and look calm, look cool, look collect, and stay focused. There's no way. If I'd have gone on there cold, I, I don't think I would have sold one box. The tongue scraping would have taken you over the top. You just wouldn't have spoke. You would have just scraped the whole <laughs> that time. Brown, they had all this brown gunky stuff. And then they show the close-up bacteria. Like, ah. <laughs> just be prepared. Be over-prepared. You know, when, when I started doing extreme makeover, I didn't just take, like, 
acting classes. I took acting classes, hosting classes, teleprompting classes. I could sit here and read a teleprompter and you'd think I'm talking to you. I studied hours and hours and hours doing that. And it's really funny. Crest did this big um, campaign. They were looking for two dentists to do this thing. So they actually um, did a screen test with over a thousand dentists. I'm the only one that came in there and was off book. That means I actually came in there and did the commercial without looking at notes. They're like, you're hired. I'm like, like that. They go, yeah, you were the only one that knew the script. <laughs> so just be better than anybody else. That's your goal, you know? And, and, you know, when you create stuff, don't just make something. Build a better mousetrap. And if you're really lucky and you really get everything lined up the right way, you're going to create a category what? Killer. <laughs> he does it all the time. Yeah, I think for me, when I think about category killers, and, and if you're ever, if there's anyone in here that's thinking about creating a business, they, they refer to it as white space, right? Like what, what is something that can be different? What product that your product is offering that's slightly different? And, and there's so many different ways that this can happen. It's, it's easy to point out really big innovations that you could never come up with, but there's really simple ways to even look at how you look at white space. When, when I have a really successful comfort brand that is called Luso Cloud, that is a, a slipper brand, and really I looked at the market research of the $3 billion in sales uh, of uh, Uggs, Crocs, and Birkenstocks, right? And was like, man, what's missing is like a premium offer in this where it's just as sort of ugly and comfy, but a little bit more premium and more expensive. It's not a, it's a, the shoes aren't a white space. Like you're talking about finding white space next to an existing, you know, monster market share. And then because we positioned it like that, we were able to go in and take a, a big market share and build a big company. We launched a shower filter head called Jolie, right? And it's like filtered shower water. Like you don't even know, like, do you even need that? But the thesis was, look at the shower, filtered shower, waterhead business. It's very small. Like nobody really buys it. But the positioning, it was a marketing white space. Instead of marketing it at Home Depot's, like, hey, filter your water, turn around and market it to the beauty industry of like, why are you going to spend uh, all this money on your hair and um, uh, face products, yet you're your water is drying out your skin and your hair. And then it marketed to the beauty product, made all beauty industry, made all beautiful and modern. It exploded in, in under uh, two years, it's worth 200 million. You know what I mean? So it's just like, it's you know, when you're looking at it, you know, when you look at being different in an opportunity, there's just a lot of different ways to hunt that white space. It could be marketing, could be product differentiation, could be pricing. There's so many different ways to do it. I want to do something fun. Mr. Surfer, come up here. Come on. Meet Rob. Leo. Leo. Can you guys turn on microphone number eight? Liam, tell Rob what you're doing. 
Um, yeah, so I've got a little surfboard repair thing going with my friends. Oh, there we go. Um, and basically, we're just trying to advertise it without like, going on TV, obviously, because we're yeah. really young. And so, I don't know. Where's it based out of? Uh, I live in Santa Barbara. Okay. So, like an hour north. Yeah. Right. And so, you got to look at it through this lens, right? Yeah. Like, how, how, how long have you been in business right now? Just a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks. Here we go. He's Let's just go. starting. <laughs> yeah, Let's yeah. Go, right? Yeah. So, look, you yeah. know, the, the beauty of the business that you are creating is you know exactly who the consumer is, mm. right? Yeah. It's surfers. Yeah. Right, so it, it's like I think a lot of times people will like create an idea and they're not sure who they're creating it for, so they don't know how to target them, you know. And so really, you know, surfers in Santa Barbara specifically, yeah. they're at the surf shop or they're at the beach, yes. right? So you even know where that they're going to be mm -hmm. at all times. So you now have to figure out creative ways for them to notice your brand. Yeah. You know, and to me, like the more creative you can be, because obviously you don't even I don't think you even need you can you can create a great social platform mm -hmm. that's super unique, but also shows the quality of the work that you do, because mm -hmm. really you're trying to get them when something happens to their surfboards, you're the first one that they call. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that will always be quality. But but I like to call it uh, capture, compel, convert. First, hit them with some razzle-dazzle, right? Like, we launched a, a pigless bacon chip, and we called it Pig Out, right? Because it's like pig, but out, because there's no pig. Uh, pig in it, right? But it Pig Out is this, like, ooh, but it's like that. It makes you, captures you, and then, like, when you read that, like, oh, this is made out of a mushroom, and this is vegan, it compels you and convert you to buy it, right? So you got to yeah. think of like, what's something you can hit them to get their attention? Yeah. Then you compel them by your, your commitment to the quality of that you're going to do for them, yeah. and that will convert them into customers, you know? Understood, yeah, that makes sense. Luz, I gave you a, a way, I gave you like way too much to even process. Yeah. Capture, but, <laughs> convert. <laughs> but, yeah. but, Capture. Yeah, yeah. It's, ex it's extensive, but... Gotcha. And, gotcha. and gotcha. the first thing you need to do, and this is my, my, my favorite part of starting businesses, you got to come up with a great name. Oh, we just did that today. So. And? Uh, it's King Tide Repairs. King Tide Repairs? Yeah. And why King Tide? Hey. Yeah. 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 Why? Um, well, basically, where I grew up, there's, you know, King Tide every season-ish. And there's like this old saying where there's only a good swell once every four months. So just about every season, there's a good swell where you can actually go out and catch some good waves. And so it's kind of locally known as... So king surfers tide. know this phrase, king tide. Yeah, at least... Because to I'm, me, I'm thinking of tide laundry detergent. Like, oh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, yeah. okay. Maybe. Let's play with yeah. names. I like your right, names. All right. All, right. <laughs> All right, Liam, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Actually, pass this to the next person. Rob said he'd be happy to do Q&A with you guys. So if anybody has any questions. Yeah. Trevor. Trevor. Hi. I'd like to start off by saying I'm a big fan since I was a little kid. Um, I had a question written down. I'm kind of blanking now. Um, going into business. I'm sorry. I'm going to look for Get it there. Quick. Get there. I'm so sorry. Refresh your memory. 
Yeah. Well, I'll start with uh, one question that I have on the top of my head. Uh, going into business after being a skater, going into the TV and business industry, uh, every skater learns and knows uh, to get back up. That's one of the first things you, you learn. Um, did that really help you going into the business industry and TV? Well, you got to think, I, I started my first company at a very young age, right? So I, 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 I really was beginning to learn all of it. But you got to think about, it's not just about falling and getting up, um, the resilience that comes with skateboarding, but it's the continuous adaptation to learn a trick. You got to keep trying it over and over and over and keep, keep making all these nuanced little decisions until boom, you make it. And I think that's what I learned the most where I, I just look at everything almost as like a creative problem that I'm solving, especially in business. And I just keep nuancing and making little changes and ideating and ideating until it finally works and then goes. Awesome. Thank you. Next. Right back there. Yep. Thank you. Um, first and foremost, I want to say a big fan. I always remember being in the hotel, scrolling through, <laughs> looking for ridiculousness. Um, I guess. Hey, and you knew it was on. Yeah. Because <laughs> they play like all day, every day. Yeah. And when you guys stand up, please say your name and where you're from. Uh, my name is Abel. I'm from Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, I guess my question is, what did you do to separate ridiculousness from the rest of the internet? Because, I mean, um, there's funny videos all over the internet, but how did you market ridiculousness to get how big um, as it is? Yeah, and look, you got to think about it. There's a lot of luck in life, you know, and, and you got to position yourself. I used to like to say, like, I made my own luck. Uh, but you've got to, there's a lot of factors that come into something like that. Because you got to think, okay, from the vision perspective, it was like I was like trying to create a better America's phone, a cooler America's Funniest Home Videos. But what happened is you know, YouTube exploded, and then it was like, oh, I could watch these on YouTube. But the value of ridiculousness is now I'm curating it for the audience, and they don't have to search anymore. They're all just being played. Then what happened? Then cable television sort of collapsed, and then the streamers came in. So now people are used to watching TV for like shooting, watching an entire season. So basically all the other shows on cable went away because what happened? Ridiculousness ended up being um, the type of show that provides the same quick um, dopamine hits as viral videos on the internet, but they're curated into a 30-minute program that plays for... 10 hours straight. So somebody could treat it like streaming and just sit there and watch it. That's what allowed it to get so big. But that was straight luck. That was straight luck and timing of the universe that like all of those things would actually come together and, and that would lead to something becoming a cornerstone of a network because anything else they try, people don't want to watch. But, you know, it wasn't like I set out. <laughs> I didn't look. I didn't create the show and be like, one day I'm going to be on like, it's going to be 55 billion minutes watched in a year, and it is going to be 65% of MTV's entire network. Can't even fathom that. Like, that, that is... Like, like when the universe works in your favor. And look, I didn't ever focus on what could, 
what I never worried about the ratings or what was ever going to happen to the show. All I kept focusing on was how to make the show easier for me to shoot and how could I shoot more of them. Because I used to shoot two episodes a day and it would take me like 45 days straight uh, to shoot like a full season where now I shoot um, you know, eight episodes in five hours, and I shoot 336 a year with just 4% of my time. You know, it's the ultimate systems creation where I've just turned the entire production into this giant machine that outputs a show that I know is going to be high quality, and then I can fire that show and get it done in 25 minutes. It gets edited into, into 22 minutes that makes it to air. So I just focused on making the show better and making the process faster to give me back more time and energy. And then what happened? Man, the universe just began to conspire. Then I went from shooting 60 a year. Then I started shooting uh, 120 a year. Then it turned to uh, 165 a year. Then 252 a year. Then 336, which no one... Like, to give you an idea how ridiculous that is, nobody in television, anytime I tell somebody that in television, they're like, what? Like, how is that even possible? And then when I say I only shoot five hours a day, four times a month for 10 months a year, they're like, what? Like, it makes no sense. But that is, how do I just keep making it? better and better and better and better like the you 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 know the practice makes permanent but like you know this idea that you can continually optimize everything and make it better there's a there's a way to make everything better in all aspects of life continuously so true i think i have a name for your company you you fix surfboards right here we go how about this pacific worn boards Worn, like worn out boards. But then Pacific it would be, it would be calling him worn, though, because like, he's fixing them. It's got to be something like well, brings it back to fix. life. They're worn out, right? Yeah. So you make them like new, right? Right, but that's what it is. That's what it is. The like new, it's got to be like the like new. When you get a board back from us, it's like surfing for the first time. Virgin surf. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. <laughs> I think Richard Branson used that. He does. You may, you may not be able to clear that. You may not be able to, may, might, might be able to get that trademark. All right. We'll, we'll focus on the fix then. Who's got the mic? Yeah, yeah. Right back there. Cool. Uh, yeah, my name's Digby. Um, and like running big corporations and having all these teams, and you discussed briefly the 80-20 rule earlier, when it comes to delegating things to people who are working with you, when do you know that it's time to step in and actually... Um, maybe help them out or take over when they can't handle, handle like their work. Yeah, look, I, it's 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 every person that ever hires anybody's you know great conundrum, right? Like you do as much as you can, you do the interviewing process, you try to make things as clear as possible, and then you hire the person that you think's perfect, and then they're doing everything wrong, and there's you got to continually put only all this 20%. energy. Only only eighty only only eighty percent twenty percent wrong, eighty yeah. percent right. And, and so to me, I what I've learned the most is. Really what you want to do is be so incredibly clear with the expectations of what the job is. 
you can't like hire somebody to do a ton of things. Like the more clear that you can get and be incredibly specific with the expectations, then hire somebody that's done it before so that, that they can make it better. You need them to do this. It's super clear. They have the experience now. They can show you how to do even what you want even better is sort of like the way that I look at everyone that I hire, um, you know, or or use to build companies with even, right? I look at entrepreneurs that have experience in the segment with the company that we built, the Jolie, the filtered shower heads. He, the entrepreneur had built a direct-to-consumer footwear business uh, and sold it for a couple hundred million. So it's like you know his experience in direct-to-consumer and building that type of of company gives you a higher probability of success because that's really the game that you're playing in life in general. You're just, you're trying to take possibilities and turn them into probabilities before they become reality because you just don't know until someone actually works for you how good they are. But if it's stressing you out and pulling energy, you gotta, you gotta fire them. You gotta be quick to fire. Anyone will tell you, uh, long, like, take forever to hire and be quick to fire, you know. So don't hire your, like, brother. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or your sister, you know. Hire slowly, fire quickly. Right there. It's hard for us because the light's right in our eyes. We can't see. I got a question okay. for Rob. That's cool, Bill. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so as someone who's always been curious about how people like Dana White started UFC and things like the XFL and how those were started, um, I wanted to ask how... You know, you began the SLS and got people like Sheckler and P-Rod involved and created such a big, you know, competitive sports yeah, um, I mean, industry. I mean, yeah, look, I, I obviously, Lorenzo Fertitta and Dana were like a huge inspiration to even my vision for it, you know, uh, that is, you know, and for me, I looked at that white space is, you know, all of our top street pro skateboarders were not entering the X Games or any of the contests because they thought it was too mainstream. And then I wanted to create an exciting format. Um, you know, essentially almost I looked at what mixed martial arts was when the UFC bought it, when it was just these different fighting styles that would fight for 45 minutes and then they turned it into weight classes and gloves and divisions, right, and era rounds. Like I really did that for skateboarding and really looked at them as the model but again, understood and had a relationship with the industry, know that there wasn't a proper professional skateboarding league that had ever been created and really modeled what they did. And, and, and for me, you got to think even, you know, as fate would even have it, then when I sold my production company, I sold my league at the same time and Dana White and the Fertitas bought it. Right. So now, you know, fast forward 12 years later, we're now partners in taking the league uh, to another level as as it relates to like the universe and what a, an amazing sort of destined sort of opportunity. So not only did they inspire it, then became friends with them. Then one day uh, they became my partner in it, you know, based off of proving the validity of there being the ability to build a professional skateboarding league. And to the point of I signed all the best skaters in the world to exclusive contracts because there was, you know, they weren't loyal to the X Games or the Dew Tour or anything else. It was the first, like, by skaters, for skaters league, you know. That's awesome. 
Hey, I have a question for you. I mean, besides your family and your kids, what professionally are you absolutely most proud of? I, you know, I, I'm, I, you know I, I always say that my, my, the thing I'm most proud of is the whole life that I've created, right? And professionally, I look at a lot of different things, like the success of the show is remarkable, like each sort of, you know, even the success of the signature footwear early on and taking a, a company from zero to $500 million from out of skateboarding, you know, I think even building the league and taking these kids that used to make a hundred grand a year to making millions a year, you know, I think all of those combined end up you know, feeling like this body of work, I almost look at like, man, like I'm, I'm in awe of the life that I've created. And I look at all the different chapters because I keep evolving and growing into new chapters. I look at each chapter as like this body of work that I get to share every few years, the new layers to it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't know that I look at any one thing um, as like my magnum opus, uh, I do believe the, the time and energy software I'm developing and my, my, my book that I'm coming out with about my philosophy of machinism, of living with complete intention, um, is going to be that. Uh, it's, it's sort of all of my entertainment um, philosophy and business know-how rolled into one big project. So that, that to me is what I think will probably be the biggest thing that I ever do because then after that, uh, I'm going to want to just be exploring life much more rather than just continually building. I've kind of coming to an end of wanting to build big things. And really, I want to get to a stage of more building smaller fun things and, and savoring life a bit more, you know. Yeah, makes sense. All right, we'll do one more question. Back there. Hello, my name is Hunter and I'm from San Francisco, California. And I was wondering, how did you build up the confidence to move to California to follow your passion, although skateboarding wasn't a major industry yet? Yeah, look, I, I think confidence is something that you grow, you know, and, and you got to have a vision. Like, you got to start developing the practice of, I want to live in California. And so then you have to start understanding, well, how does that, what are all the things that actually need to happen for me to ever get there? And if you look at anything in your life, and you look out into the future and this is what I want to do, to get there is actually, you know, probably, you know, four to five big milestones that actually have to happen before you get there. And that first milestone, you have to believe in every bit of your soul you can get to that one. And, and as you move towards that one, the confidence builds. You grow confidence. Then when you get to the first one, you're like, man, now the second one becomes clear. And I think for me, it was the idea that, okay, you know, you had to turn pro. Then you had to, uh, you had to, you had to win some contests and build a big enough profile to be able to turn pro. So the first, like milestone was you had to win some contests and build the profile. So as I started doing better and then finally won one, then it was like, man, you can really do this. You're building it. Then uh, you create that higher level of notoriety and that gets you to the second milestone of turning pro. Like then it's like, okay, now I'm pro, but what happens? You make $600, you know? And so the, the next thing is like, okay, now you're pro. you got to figure out other ways to make more money so you can move to California. And then you end up getting another sponsor and convince your core sponsor to guarantee. They guaranteed me 
$1,000 a month if I would move to California, and I felt like I hit the lotto. I felt like I hit the lottery. I was like, what? I am out of here. And hopped in my Honda Civic and drove straight to San Diego, California, and, and let life begin. But it, it didn't happen overnight. You'd never get confident in anything by telling yourself, be confident. You get confident in proving to yourself that you can continually grow and do what you envision you're capable of doing that leads you to the bigger vision that you want to happen off in the future. You have to develop that skill. And when you, do, when you go through that process over and over, you get really good at manufacturing your own confidence you know awesome hey you guys let's give it up for rob deirdrick thank you guys it wasn't ridiculous it was awesome man all right let's take some photos out here you guys can take a 10 minute break This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.